You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, where we speak with some of the largest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what is top of mind for the C-suite and other security leaders. I'm Ann Johnson, and today I'm joined by New York Times cybersecurity reporter and best-selling author, Nicole Perlroth. Nicole recently released her book, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race, which, by the way, I love your book. But it was filled with spies and hackers and arms dealers and a few unsung heroes. The new book is actually written like a thriller and a reference and has been called an astonishing feat of journalism. Based on years of reporting and hundreds of interviews, Nicole, quote, lifts the curtain on the market in the shadow revealing the urgent threat faced by all of us if we cannot bring the global cyber arms race to heel. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, and thanks for joining me, Nicole. Thank you. I will have cyber tea with you anytime, Anne. So your book is such a fascinating book, and, you know, I love the the prose and how it's written, and it's, of course, by a topic that, you know, I live every day, and most of our listeners live and love every day. So I want to dive in. We are seeing, and this is an interesting period too, right? Since from December of last year to when we're recording here in June, we've seen just this explosion in cyber attacks, high profile attacks. And we've seen actors engaging in new reconnaissance techniques that increase their chances of compromising high value targets. We know that criminal groups or targeting businesses have moved their infrastructure to the cloud. We know they can hide amongst legitimate services. And we know the recent cyber attacks on our supply chain, on our hospitals, on our you know oil supply and beef supply here in the US only demonstrate that these actors are eager to be more disruptive and they want to actually interrupt the fabric of our everyday lives. So you describe your book as, quote, the story of this vast digital vulnerability of how and why it exists, of the governments that have exploited and enabled it, and the rising stakes for every single person. When you look at these recent cyber attacks making headlines, where do you think we're most vulnerable? What have been the warning signs, including the ones we've potentially ignored? And what do you think we've largely ignored when taking advantage of cyber warfare? But also, what do you think the biggest threats are as we go into the future? Well, good questions. You know, right now, obviously, ransomware is top of mind. But what I worry about the most is like, just look at the colonial pipeline attack that everyone's talking about right now. Here is a cyber criminal group that claims to have a lot of distance from the state. They actually went out of their way to post a manifesto a couple months when they first showed up online last last year that said, we are the good guys. We don't hack uh, hospitals or governments. We hack large corporations. We're like Robin Hood. So they bumble into Colonial Pipeline's IT network. They don't actually hold the pipeline hostage. They just hold its backend systems hostage. And because suddenly Colonial couldn't capture billing information or charge any of its customers downstream, it shut that down. We all saw what happened next. Fortunately, we didn't get to a place that I saw where we were going in this classified assessment from the Department of Energy that actually showed that the United States could only have afforded maybe two, three more days of downtime before chemical refineries ground to a halt because they couldn't get their diesel 
off the colonial pipeline, mass transit ground to a halt. You know, we were getting so close to that. And so what's the takeaway here? Well, we've always worried about a nation state hack of our critical infrastructure. And a lot of times when I brought it up, I've been accused of being too alarmist. But here what you have is a cyber criminal group butting up into the system and basically triggering the same downstream effect as if Russia's sandworm GRU operators came directly for our pipeline. And what it has showed the world in any would-be anarchist or rogue actor or maybe a sophisticated nation state that is looking for some cover is that they don't actually have to take it all the way to have the same downstream effect. And in fact, when they do that, it gives them the ability to say, this wasn't us, we didn't mean to, you know, like Putin said a couple of years ago, hackers are like artists. They wake up in the morning in a good mood and start painting. We have nothing to do with what they do or don't do. And it really calls into question this model we've been working towards when you look at the United States' own cyber offense operations of mutually assured digital destruction. You know, we broke the story that Cyber Command was hacking the Russian grid in a show of force. When we went to the National Security Council to tell them we were about to publish this story, we expected them to say, you can't possibly publish this story. And so they said, go right ahead. We want Russia to know we're hacking their grid. And maybe that deters Russia proper, but it hasn't deterred Russia's cyber criminals. And it's really hard to know how to respond to cyber criminals in a way that's going to deter the next cyber criminal from popping up with a new brand name and basically doing the same things. So that's what I worry about now is that we have a new playbook or maybe it's an old one where we're outsourcing or can outsource really destructive attacks, you know, potentially deadly attacks to these actors. And so long as they say they're a ransomware group, then you know our response is sort of hamstrung by the fact it's not a nation state. And so we're not developing you know, smart modes of deterrence. And I don't even know if we can when we're talking about a criminal that could pop out of nowhere, which is why I think now is the time to face the fact that we could be the world's top cyber offensive superpower, but look where it's getting us. It's not getting us very far in terms of our defense when we're so vulnerable. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there, right? So I want to put them in separate buckets. One, it occurred to me how fragile our supply chain is. It was shocking to me the concentration of risk that Colonial Pipeline had. And you know if that concentration of risk exists there, it's going to exist in other sectors or other even you know oil suppliers. That's one thing we need to address. The second thing, though, is that harboring of cyber criminals, right, and the outsourcing of these attacks so that the nation states can be one step removed. And I don't know, you said mutually assured digital destruction. If you think about just mutually assured destruction, you'll go back to the, you know, to the 80s, the Cold War, right? Um, can we use the same type of deterrence? Can we actually incent these nation states not to harbor criminals? I don't think there's a, a quick or easy answer to that. Yeah, I think... You know, some of the smart suggestions I've seen, the smartest of them probably wouldn't work in Russia. You know, we've seen this ransomware task force. You know, some of their suggestions around safe harbor were, you know, stop giving Russian students student visas and, and travel visas. So you could create that domestic pressure on the government to do something about cybercrime. That sounds really smart on paper, but I don't think it's enough when you're talking about Vladimir Putin 
that he would actually stop harboring these cyber criminals. They've become such a national asset, not just, you know, giving them plausible deniability in a potential state-backed cyber criminal operation on a U.S. pipeline, but we saw it in the Yahoo indictment when we saw you know, that breach, the largest Russian breach of an American communications company basically came down to four dudes in Russia. I don't even think one of them was Russian, but it was two cyber criminals and two FSB agents. And the FSB said, go right ahead, do your thing, steal the credentials, sell them on the dark web, you know, profit off this attack. But when you find a personal Yahoo account for someone who works at the White House or is a diplomat or works in the Foreign Service, we expect you to pass that along. And unfortunately, we don't have that luxury here. You know, we're not seeing the NSA as far as I know, unless you've seen it, Anne. <laughs> Tap the best security engineer on the shoulder at Microsoft and say, tonight you're coming and moonlighting for us. You know, and we already have talent constraints and recruiting constraints. We're not China. We can't force people to participate in some of these sensitive government offensive operations. So we're really constrained from a talent perspective, but also we're just so vulnerable, you know? Sure, we're the nations or the world's top cyber superpower, but now we're the most targeted and arguably the most vulnerable because we're so automated. And how did the colonial pipeline attack happen? It happened because they had an old VPN account and a stolen password on an account that didn't have two-factor authentication turned on. You know, how did, how did the water treatment hack go down? It was a water treatment facility that used a decade-old version of Windows that hadn't received security updates for years, and they didn't have two-factor authentication turned on. So as long as we're making it that easy, you know, throwing stones is not going to deter anyone when it's just so easy for them to come right back and get into these really critical systems with a stolen password. Yeah, and I, I want to say there's obviously a lot to unpack, and we'll keep our focus on um, cyber for the moment because I think there's a lot the U.S. has lost in the past 30 or 40 years, even with relation to how we do diplomacy and how we incent nations to behave, right, in, in a manner that's not um, damaging to us. But instead of going down that path, I do want to talk for just one second um, about the fact that it, it's the point you made, right? And Colonial said it was a single account they accessed that had VPN access, but was actually an old account, not managed any longer, and didn't have multi-factor authentication. I think we need to keep telling those stories because mm -hmm. people need to understand that most of these attacks aren't sophisticated APTs that are incredibly persistent in trying to get into your environment. Most of them happen because of something that simple. Yeah. And, you know, you know, just a quick aside here is, you know, I wrote a book that starts out with the zero day market. And the reason I focused on the zero day market is because I'd always been fascinated by this moral hazard baked into the market and and some of these um, security dilemmas, I guess you would say that, you know, we would actually keep a vulnerability open for our own counterintelligence purposes or battlefield preparations and have our knee-jerk reaction be to get it fixed. And there we're trading on cybersecurity for what we still think of as national security without realizing that they're now one in the same, you know, that the Cold War never really ended, it just went digital. Um, but more than that, I was just interested in incentive models generally. You know, if this is the government's incentive model, that seems very counterintuitive. That seems like it's leading us down a road of further vulnerability. But I also wanted to explore businesses, and that has nothing to do with the zero-day market. That's just businesses still look 
at security is something that has no ROI, you know, that is a loss leader. We saw that with SolarWinds. After SolarWinds, you know, when we, I start scratching around around SolarWinds security and commitment to security, it's the same old story. It's a company that had offshored a lot of their coding and build operations to places like Belarus, you know, that was using, having an intern set the password to their software update mechanism, SolarWinds123. You know, it's it's a company that was warned over and over and over again by their security team that unless they made a more significant commitment to their own internal cybersecurity, the results could be cataclysmic. And those people ended up quitting because no one took their warning seriously. That's not a story that's unique to SolarWinds. That's actually a more common narrative that we see after these big attacks than not. You know, really like the only companies that looked good after SolarWinds was FireEye, you know, which announced it had been hacked early, did what we all say we want companies to do, rewound the tape, saw that the attack had come in through SolarWinds and warned everyone else while they cleaned up their own systems. And Microsoft, which didn't have to come out and say it had been breached, but came out voluntarily and said, yeah, we think they viewed our source code. Um, you know, that is a problem for X, Y, or Z reasons. Here's what we're doing. But for the most part, all it did was expose the fact that we actually don't know what's in our systems. You know, all of those SolarWinds customers, they didn't know SolarWinds was built in Belarus. You know, they didn't know that was the password. And so the good news is these are all forcing us to open our eyes and see where business incentives have gotten us, the marketplace has taken us in cybersecurity and to ask, how do we course correct here? You know, how do we do basic things like SBOM, software bill of materials? How do we fund and secure open source code? Because it's critical infrastructure now, it really is. So the, the good news is I've been covering this for 10 years, but every time it's such a similar story, it's womp womp, it was you know no two-factor or a stolen password or a phishing email. But the good news now is we're, we're actually asking, wait, how do we change that? And it's, it's gonna be more than something up here in terms of just diplomacy or deceptive technology or something really advanced. It's, it's going to have to be awareness and a cultural shift. Um, and a recognition that our national cybersecurity and our enterprise security is really dependent on everyone waking up. And that's why I actually love the story I did the other week about Bob Lord at the DNC. You know, why didn't the DNC get hacked in 2020? Well, maybe it was because of the goodness of Russia's heart or because we were, you know, also focused on the election that it diverted them to pull off solar winds instead. But I have a feeling that the things Bob did at DNC made a big difference. And it was things like stapling a security checklist above the men's urinal, asking people whether they'd run their security updates <laughs> and we're using a Yubi key and, and all of those things that we've been told for so long that we need to do, but just haven't been doing. So a couple of things. One, you would have thought, right, that when we saw the big event that happened um, because of Medox, we would have raised awareness on, you know, supply chain and the risk there and the vulnerabilities there when, when you had big, you know, big companies who were very public about it, by the way, were impacted and it took down their operations. It cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. But, but the second thing, point I wanted to make, and I'd love you to respond to because you just said it, is I was talking to a, um, a government entity about, you know, our posture during the Cold War was exactly what you said, Bob 
Bob Lord did. You know, if you walk down a hallway, there were all kinds of advice and recommendations of what you should and shouldn't do, signage everywhere. And the fact we need to get cybersecurity signage, you should walk into an elevator, right? As an average person, you know, and, and say, hey, have you used your YubiKey or do you have MFA set up or whatever it is? Here's what a phishing link looks like. I think there is so much more awareness we can do because we know, again, these events start with simple human error in a lot of cases. Yeah. You know, I hadn't really thought about it this way until you said it, but I'm a generation younger. But, you know, my parents still talk about the nuclear drills that they did at school. And growing up in California, it's earthquake drills. And you do it when you're five years old. And I don't even want to think about the fact we have to do mass shooting drills now in schools. But, you know, why not bake this into our education and culture very early on? You know, I just was actually talking to a group of people who were responsible for conducting phishing simulations at, at various enterprises like Delta and, and uh, some of the major airlines and, and global marketing agencies. And they said there's actually a generational problem when it comes to phishing that, that they see with an older generation that just clicks because they can't spot these phishing emails as well because they're not as native, um, but also this younger generation, and I hate to be the person who's like, this, these younger guys, um, but that their risk tolerance is much higher and their perception is, well, China already has everything, uh, that why does it matter whether I click on this or not? And we need to change that. <laughs> we need to make sure that people know that it, security really does come down to the weakest link and they're the weakest link and maybe start doing these ransomware drills, you know, pretty early on, you know, making people do fishing exercises in high school or in middle school, you know, really drill this down because that's, that's what it's coming to. And hopefully we'll continue to work on advanced security solutions, but, you know, over and over and over and over and over again, it comes down to these fishing exercises. You know, maybe they're getting a little more clever, like the one we saw with with constant contact and USAID the other week. But for the most part, I actually I have to say, I have to stop here since we're doing our tea and I can dance around a little bit. Um, I was doing a radio call-in show yesterday, uh, the Brian Lehrer Show for NPR. And this guy called in and he said, I just wanna share my acronym for phishing emails. He said, it's email. I'd never heard this before. He said, it's examine message and inspect link. And I thought that was great. That is great. It's tangible. People can understand it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, what we have to do. Yes, there's going to be 10 to 20% of breaches that are are more sophisticated. But if we can get the 80% covered because we educate and make awareness and we raise it to the level, and I am of that generation, right? I I went to school during the Cold War. I was young, but I was there. Um, And I remember the drills. And, you know, I worked in, in, in California for quite a while. And I remember earthquake drills in the office. And I think those are the types of things we need to have cyber drills, not just for, you know, we have tabletop exercises for executives and senior leadership, you need to have them for the company, right? In some type of scalable way. And, you know, I've come around to this idea that, and I've been saying this part a lot, I probably already said it through this conversation is, you know, yes, we're the world's top cyber superpower, but now we're the most targeted and arguably the most vulnerable because we've automated so much of our critical infrastructure. But that's not going to win the next war. What's going to win the next war is the cyber iron dome. You know, it's the digital equivalent of Israel, a country that can live 
in a world on an internet of hostile activity and hostile actors that are continually trying to undermine you know, their economy, their basic way of life, but they can't do it, partly because the offense is good, but predominantly because the defense is so good. And that's what we're not realizing. And that's what, you know, we're in for some short-term pain here, a lot of pain. You know, Colonial Pipeline and JBS are just the latest, but like, I, I didn't even get to cover the ransomware attack on the Villages Hospital, the nation's largest retirement community, because I've done the hospital hack story and they're happening all the time. And how many can you do, you know, really? So we're gonna continue to see these ransomware attacks get more and more visceral before we actually start doing the work. And, and, and the thing now, and I think everyone realizes this, is that these aren't going away. They're just gonna get more serious and more frequent until we do something about it. So this sort of like, well, it's so bad, what can we really do? We, it's too late to like take back the internet. You know, we'll always have a weakest link. We can't afford it. It's too expensive. Uh, you know, we don't have the human resources for it. Like no more excuses. And I think really that comes down to not just zero trust in your vendors, but zero tolerance. You know, when I think about what are these major milestones that improved cybersecurity over the last two decades, the main one was Bill Gates's memo, the 2000 yeah. Open Trustworthy Computing Project. You know, we can all, and I realize he's your, still in some ways your boss, but he didn't write that out of the goodness of his own heart. That came after NIMBA and the I love you virus and the Melissa or whatever it was called and the timing of them after 9-11 and government customers calling up Bill Gates and saying, you're gonna have to do something about this, otherwise we're gonna take our business elsewhere. And so they changed everything. And we have that ability. And I and I actually have to praise, you know, Ann Newberger's team and, and this latest cyber executive order for fitting in a very powerful stick in the power of the purse and saying, listen, we'll cut out some of the red tape. We'll get rid of some of the bureaucracy. We'll come up with these NIST frameworks, NIST guidelines. You can self-certify that you meet them. But if you don't, if we catch you using a decade-old version of Windows or not using two-factor or not having secure design you know embedded in your build code we are going to bar you from ever doing business with the federal government ever again and for a company like colonial pipeline it's a private company but it butts up against federal systems just because it's such a major conduit for jet fuel and diesel and gas that's a powerful stick and i think we need more of them i like this idea of zero tolerance not just zero trust but zero tolerance i do too and um, my, um, I love the concept of zero tolerance and my producer is telling me we have 10 minutes. So I want to hit on a couple other things while I have you. Um, I want to talk about this concept. You said that zero days provide cyber criminals with digital superpowers. So I am changing, um, the conversation from the routine things people need to do to actually talking about zero days. Can you explain what you mean by digital superpowers? Well, it's just that they're able to crawl around these systems like our iPhone undetected. And what more could you want really as a spy? You know, if you can come up with a remote uh, zero click, zero day exploits for iOS and get into someone's phone and track their location and read all their text messages and, you know, secretly record all of their surround sound and conversations and turn on their video feed and track their appointments. You know, what else do you want? And if you can do all of that, 
for as long as Apple doesn't know about that zero day exploit, you know, or someone at Project Zero or something finds it, I consider those digital superpowers, you know? I always remember that episode of This American Life where Ira Glass asked people, what would be your top superpower if you could have one? Would you rather fly or be invisible? And it said a lot about people. Um, you know, this is invisibility. That's a superpower. Um, and so that's what I meant by that. So um, another major publication ran a story today that cyber criminals are harbored behind the, the cyber curtain, and they likened it to the Iron Curtain of, of Russia. Mm-hmm. What, when you, we talked a lot about this, I know, Nicole, but when you think about the harboring of these actors and then you think about zero days, do you see a world where we will, you know, it's relevant to your book, um, but do you see a world where we're going to get to the place of physical response as opposed to, you know, our, our great offensive capabilities? Yes, I do. The offense right now, as far as we can see in open source worlds, it's not working. You know, the sanctions, the nasty diplomatic letters, the expulsion of Russian diplomats isn't working for deterrence. Um, it didn't stop Russia from pulling off solar winds. Offense didn't catch it because, you know, we're it's getting embedded into the SVR systems or the Russian power grid wasn't enough for the NSA to catch solar winds. They were in our systems for nine months before FireEye discovered them, a private company. So it's not working. So, you know, I think it is time to possibly consider real world physical effects, whether that's cyber induced or not, you know, shut off the lights, you know, let them know that we're not just sitting here every single time going to come back with a nasty note and saying, don't do this, you know, wagging our finger. The problem is when it comes to physical attacks um, and more serious responses, our first question always is, but what will Vlad do in return? You know, what will Putin do? And the reason we ask that question is because we're so vulnerable, because people still aren't using two-factor authentication and updating their software and all of those things. And until we get to a place of this cyber iron dome, we're always going to be asking ourselves, but what will Vlad do if we turn off the lights there or we cause an explosion on, on the Russian pipeline or a chemical facility? And so, sure, we can go do some act of physical destruction, but they're already in our system, so they can do something, they can turn around and do something here. There's really no point almost to pulling off that physical act unless we can really shore up our security here because they could respond in a similar way and tell the international community this was a you know, proportional, appropriate response. Those are the words we use all the time. But what is proportional and what is appropriate? And sure, yes, when you add up all of these ransomware attacks on our critical infrastructure, and you take into consideration that SolarWinds got into utility companies and that, you know, Russia has breached Wolf Creek and they've gotten their fingers on our switches, you know, collectively when you add it up, maybe it does add up to some kind of cyber-induced physical response. But then again, we're, we're just going to have to ask ourselves, but if we do that, you know, what could they turn around and do here? And that's that's the place I would love to see us get out of is I would love to see us stop coming from this place of, vulnerability and insecurity and questioning and fear of Vladimir Putin. What was your favorite part of writing your book, Nicole? 
You know, I, so I've been covering cybersecurity at the Times for 10 years, and it's like being a, a forest firefighter. I'm just going from one fire to the next, and I really had not had time to pull my head up and to just use common sense, really, to look at patterns. And as you know, you know, the information security community tends to be really myopic. You know, they tend to focus on the code and the technicalities. And it's rare that someone stands up and says, wait, wait a minute, why, why is Russia taking out a French television network and pretending to be ISIS? And why are they hacking the opening ceremony of the Olympics? Sure, they were pissed about the, you know, anti-doping stuff that came down, but the immediate suspect in that attack was North Korea, it wasn't Russia. And only later we learned it was the GRU. Why is why is Russia dismantling the safety locks at a Saudi petrochemical facility? You know, when we first discovered that attack, we assumed it was Iran and only later learned it was Russia. Well, it was only really when stepping back and writing my book that it became very obvious that not only are they playing around with capabilities, not just in Ukraine now, but all over the world, they're playing around with attribution. And where is this all headed? You know, do we think they're doing this for fun? Or are these simulations for the real deal? And it was really only in writing the book that I could see, you know what? It's not that alarmist to say we're overdue for some kind of attack. And if we're headed that way, you know, why are we all just sitting here twiddling our thumbs talking about a cyber Pearl Harbor and waiting for that to happen and hoping that might wake everyone up? Um, because maybe it's time we look at where we are right now. And where we are right now is we've never been closer <laughs> to that attack. So that was the first thing is just, be, having the ability to like pull my head out of the water and see what was happening and where all these waves were, were coming from and where they were going. And then the other part I loved was just sort of, you know, the part you don't think you're going to like going into it, but those like college all-nighters uh, where I'd be sitting in my house in the woods with coffee and the internet turned off and really just using my writing skills and my translation skills to put this all in context was such a relief. It was such a relief to get this story out of my head and onto the page and to be able to, to really just kind of do it through the intellectual challenge of writing and, and, and processing that myself. Nicole, I want to thank you for joining us. I, I wish we could do like three episodes, but thank you so much. It's been fascinating. It's always great to talk to you, by the way, and your perspective. And I encourage everyone to go out there and read your book because it really, it, no matter how long you've been doing cyber, you're going to learn some things that will surprise you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Anne. You know, like I said, like there's only, the, the community tends to be really myopic and it's really rare to find someone that can really translate these issues to a point where people can get it and, and then do something about it. And there aren't that many people like you in this industry, but you're doing it. And these conversations, you know, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but this one's really important. <laughs> so thank you, you know, for doing this and, and hosting these conversations. Thank you. And thank you very much to our audience. We'll look forward to having you next time on Afternoon Cyber Team. So I chose Nicole Perroth as a guest for Afternoon Cyber Tea because of her book, 
Um, she's written this amazing book, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, and she really went through hundreds of interviews and 10 years of journalist experience in cybersecurity to understand the threats we're facing today from cyber actors, nation states, and cyber criminals, and brings a lot of credibility and a unique perspective to it. And I thought she'd be an amazing guest for Afternoon Cyber Tea. And guess what? When you listen to the episode, she was. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.